Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm your host, Mike Allen. On this week's program, it's the only time the U.S. Constitution was amended and then amended again to negate the earlier amendments. The prohibition on the making, sale, and transportation of alcohol was constitutionally banned in 1920, but 13 years later, during the Depression of the early 1930s, the 21st Amendment was passed to supersede the 18th, and, well, liquor became legal again. How did Connecticut deal with it, especially being just one of two states that did not ratify the original amendment? Well, we're going to talk about all that, and we're also going to talk about what it was like in the city of Danbury, where Bridget Girton is the executive director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. And now, how Connecticut thumbed its nose at Prohibition. 13 years. That's how long Prohibition was in effect in the United States. It was passed in 1919, and the nation got one year to prepare. Well, Prohibition began because a politically powerful movement convinced enough members of Congress that the root of all societal evils was alcohol. The Industrial Age was well underway in the 1800s, and it had led to a wave of immigration. And frankly, just like today, the acceptance of new immigrants was not universally well-received, and the traditional cultural adherence to beer and spirits among many of them was often cited as a core societal issue. In the 1800s, a woman from Kansas said that God had told her that she needed to end this dreaded alcohol curse. And so this woman, named Carrie Nation, took her hatchet and visited bar after bar in her home state of Kansas and soon after other states, literally chopping down bars. About the same time that Carrie was doing her thing, the Women's Christian Temperance League was formed. The group argued that they were protecting the family and the home life from drunken husbands and fathers who drank away the mortgage money and committed sometimes physical abuse on family members in their drunken state. Well, soon thereafter, another group, the Anti-Saloon League, which was a group of Protestant clergymen based in Ohio, lobbied Congress very effectively. And in Connecticut, none other than P.T. Barnum spoke out in favor of temperance, as did noted Litchfield pastor Lyman Beecher. He was the father of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Well, what many people didn't really understand immediately was the economic impacts. If alcohol was going to be prohibited, the federal government really couldn't exist. 40% of its revenues came from excise taxes that were levied on alcohol sales. In 1913, something very important occurred. The federal income tax was introduced. And by allowing Uncle Sam to tax everybody's paychecks, well, they could make up for the dip in the excise tax. So with that, the final push began to ban alcohol. When Congress finally did pass the 18th Amendment, all the states ratified it, except two, Connecticut and Rhode Island. Nevertheless, it was now the law of the land, and immediately systems started to take shape to allow liquor to flow into Connecticut as it always had. By 1921, just one year into Prohibition, state officials estimated there were 1,500 speakeasies in Connecticut, and alcohol manufacturers would anchor their very large schooners on something called Rum Row. It was an area three miles off the Connecticut coastline in international waters, and from there, smaller speedboats would go out to them, offload the cargo, and bring it ashore 
outrunning the slower boats that the newly formed Coast Guard had at its disposal. Well, there were only 13 federal agents assigned to enforce prohibition in Connecticut, and they got paid $25,000 a year. So why were there hundreds of applicants every time one of these jobs opened up? One estimate says that they were making $200,000 a year or more in bribes. Now, while prohibition banned some aspects of alcohol, you could still grow your own grapes and press them for wine so long as the alcohol content did not exceed 0.5%. For three bucks, you could visit your doctor and get a prescription for alcohol if you had certain ailments. You could obtain a new pint every 10 days. Places of worship could use sacramental wines. In 1930, 26,000 gallons of wine were consumed that way. Well, alcohol consumption in many minds had become a societal issue that had to be reckoned with, and that's where we begin the conversation with our guest, Danbury Museum Executive Director Bridget Girton. Her own city, like all others, faced both the pros and cons of alcohol prohibition. The average person over 15 years old was drinking 7.3 gallons per day. Yes, but the proof on the alcohol was much less. If In the 1830s, if you're drinking small beer or you're drinking ciders or uh, you're not, you know, getting out Kentucky bourbon and, and downing out, some people would be, but the alcohol content was less for the people who imbibed it on a regular basis because it was safer. You know, you think about all the things you could get from a well or from a stream. I mean, my gosh, our hat factories were going strong and dumping everything into the rivers by the 1850s and 1860s. My gosh, my golly, I wouldn't be drinking from that. And so you have this holdover idea that, you know, from the, the 16th century and the 17th century that water by itself can kill you. It's bad for you. And uh, drinking something that has a small amount of alcohol in it is a much safer option. The problem is that the alcohol content, we got better at it. And that raises the amount of alcohol, the proof of the alcohol, and um, that makes it a much more scarier proposition if you're talking about that kind of consumption. But that all happens gradually. It's an arc, right? Well, and I think In researching this, one of the things that to me sort of jumped off the page was how the ugly face of anti-immigrant comes into this. And, you know, as you see this growing, you see the anti-saloon league and and even Carrie Nation, whose husband died of alcoholism and, and, you know, went forward. It's kind of disturbing to see how banning alcohol by people who were still drinking, but blaming it on an immigrant population. Uh, We've done a lot of ugly things in our past, and uh, blaming or um, infantilizing the people who consume alcohol and saying that what they are doing is so wrong that we have to create a a system of laws to teach them as if they are children. The absolute paternalism in that is shocking, especially to our modern sensibilities. And I'll I'll talk more specifically about Danbury. We have immigrants from all over the world uh, settling here. By the 1900s, we're speaking 27 languages that we've identified in our city streets. That's phenomenal. From 1684 on, we can see people who come from England and from Scotland, and it goes on and on and on. And by the time you get to the early 1900s, you have immigrants who are repeating the immigrant pattern of arrival, but with trauma. You know, people don't leave their home country for the most part because things are good. 
They are leaving traumatized uh, economically, physically, educationally. And so their arrival here is fraught with assimilation issues uh, for every single group. And it's also fraught with the need to get a home, provide uh, for a family that you might start here, and to you know, create some sort of, of social network. Where are we going to go to find our people? We're going to go to the churches that were built up and down Main Street or the bars and social clubs that were built on the other side of Main Street and, you know, down our, our side streets. And what are we going to do while we're there? We're going to imbibe something that reminds us of home. And we're going to make friends and we're going to relax. And the assumption that everyone who was in a bar or a saloon was a full-blown alcoholic or couldn't be charged with their own care and needed to be protected from their own selves is, um, well, gosh, it's breathtaking uh, when you look back on that and, and very, very scary. This perception that the immigrants used alcohol more than anyone else is probably more aligned with the idea that they were forming community and forming political blocks, and all of that was part and parcel of the discussion. Well, you also had not just churches lining Main Street, you had saloons and people catering to the demand. What ended up happening, unfortunately, was you had a lot of, like you say, uh, factory workers paid in cash, would go home, and on the way, they'd walk by the saloon, go in and have one turn into five and, you know, and spend the mortgage money. And then sometimes there would be social problems at home. And, you know, and so all of these things that get pushed by the temperance movement as issues. And so some members of the temperance movement recognized that there needed to be more of a social services outreach, but most put all of their eggs in the basket of if you just stop the alcohol, all of these things are going to change. But I think through our modern lens, we can look back and say, gosh, no, you know, you have all of these issues that aren't really going to go away when you take away alcohol. They're still going to be there. That needs to be more of a social service issue. And so post-Civil War period in Danbury through the early 1900s, you start to see the creation of private organizations that help solve some of our social issues. We have orphanages, and we have places that uh, will help care for you if you're down on your luck. We have church groups and women's groups. And so at the same time that the temperance movement is really rocking and rolling, there are people in towns just like Danbury who are kind of like, gosh, temperance is great. But we also need to do this. So, you know, it's um, we can look back in the city yearbooks and we can see uh, multiple temperance organizations happening at the same time. And some of them took different tracks uh, than others. And as I jokingly referred to uh, to you before, I call them, you know, the cold water gangs, which is a colloquial term I did not make up. <laughs> so, you know, you see the cold water game coming, you better turn around because they're going to be preaching at you. So, you know, the, the cold water gangs were like really like, that's it. It's cold water. It's tea. It's, you know. Uh, They were very vociferous. They believed the message that the alcohol was at the root of all evil. So we started on the great experiment of temperance. And golly, that was quite an experiment. And there was another kind of overlay along with the immigration lens, which was women's rights. It's interesting to see how this then factored into also during the same time period, women's rights coming in. So temperance gave many women uh, the opportunity for a voice in a way that they hadn't had before. At any one point in history, we're, we're not just one topic, one issue, right? So, and, and even now, there are so many threads of what's happening 
you know, a historian will look back and you can parse out those threads. And, you know, looking back at the, we call it the the arc of temperance or, you know, the most popularized part of the movement, uh, you can see that the issue that's, that some people had with immigrants who were building this country, the issue that people had with women, and the issue that women had in having a voice, they're all tied together. You know, one of the positive outcomes of the temperance movement was the idea that women should be heard in in a much larger playing field. And so it was an imperfect alliance of many different personalities. But, uh, and I wouldn't say that women's rights were an outcome of temperance. It was something that was happening at the same time. But uh, the idea of powerful women speaking their truths and and wanting to be heard was something that engaged the minds of, of many young women who were growing up in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. So it was it was time. When you talk about Danbury specifically, you said before we started recording that there were speakeasies all over town. Oh, sure. How many were there? Do you do you have any idea? I know you've done some research. Well, if I had evidence of how many there were, they wouldn't have been doing their job. <laughs> so, you know, the whole concept is that a speakeasy is uh, is quiet on the down low, you know, maybe moves around. I can tell you that we can follow through the newspaper articles the activities of the local police department. Our Danbury Police Department followed the letter of the law. And for the first few years, they were much like uh, police departments all across the country involved in investigating and tamping down the illegal use of alcohol. But as a nation, we got tired of that. And so you can see the articles in the paper start to peel away. And so does that mean that Danbury just successfully became a dry town? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, the opposite is is much more likely to have been true. So the anecdotal stories that we collected here of people who had speakeasies in the basement of their homes and they invited their friends and their relatives and friends of their relatives and friends of those friends uh, to stop in and maybe, you know, slip a little coinage across across the table and in exchange for a drink there or a take-home bottle. Those are our legion. And by the time we got to the end of this grand experiment in prohibition, there wasn't a real effort to tamp down this in Danbury. And we know anecdotally that uh, the Great Danbury Fair served as a, a wonderful resource for persons who were coming south from Canada or from New York City or Boston to exchange pleasantries, enjoy the fair, and then go home with gifts in the boot of their car. So, you know, it was the easy exchange of alcohol in Danbury was facilitated by a number of different things, not not least of which is the fact that we had a really good road system. I mean, this is prior to, to, to 84, but we still have really good connectivity. We can drive in, we can drive out. We have reasons for people to be driving through our town. So as a distribution point, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And golly, the, the Danbury Fair must have seemed like a wonderfully legitimate opportunity to a lot of different people. You know, we had multiple raids by the Connecticut State Police. And in the beginning, they did find alcohol that was being illegally used. But gosh, uh, like halfway through Prohibition, man, they would get here and, and they couldn't find it. And and I don't know who would have tipped off. <laughs> and I say this facetiously. I know your audience can't see me laughing. But golly gee willikers, who would have tipped off uh, the people who were producing a little hooch for the community that the Connecticut State Police might be on their way? It was a community-wide, nationwide dissatisfaction by the end of Prohibition with an experiment that infantilized our nation. And 
when the experiment ended, there were some positive lasting consequences, not least of which was the outgrowth of social services, uh, because it was apparent that just taking alcohol away does not solve the social issues or the social ills. And so it was a grand experiment that didn't work, but in some ways it set us up for the successful idea that there can be social guards and, and safeties in place to help a community. And you know, it's interesting if you fast forward to modern times, we had, and I remember in my earlier years, it was a huge problem with drunken driving. And people were getting killed all the time in drunk driving car accidents. Now, it doesn't mean that nobody gets killed in drunk driving car accidents anymore. Of course they do. But the statistics are way down as people, both laws have changed, but also awareness and I think responsibility. And I think, you know, sometimes that's just as effective as laws. So uh, a good community conversation that continues for years and years with input from all particulars might have served us as a nation a little bit better. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we did what we did. And I was, I was telling you before that uh, one of the funnest stories for me, the craziest stories during our Prohibition years is the party they held at the Hotel Green in January of the year that Prohibition began. It was the night before Prohibition began, actually. And they had our, our Danbury community knew Prohibition was coming, the bars that had served and the people who had alcohol that was going to be taken away from them, collected all of that alcohol and they brought it to the Hotel Green. And the Hotel Green sold tickets. And they had an absolutely fantastic goodbye party to Jim Beam. It was a just a, a crazy, crazy time. And you know, the Hotel Green could host uh, hundreds of people. And according to the newspaper articles the next day, they were packed to the gills. People were even outside. Alcohol was passed out to people. And uh, it was toast after goodbye toast with everything that was available. And uh, the newspaper uh, reported some of the toasts, which were, which were really funny. And they also reported that most of Danbury had uh, quite a headache as we entered Temperance the following day. You know, we had a we had a good humor about it uh, to begin with, but the humor didn't last as people started to chafe under the idea of the actual prohibition of alcohol. Well, prohibition finally did run out of steam. 75% of Americans finally favored repealing it. In Connecticut, enforcement was costing $40 million a year, while the state's coffers were out $800 million in potential tax revenues. FDR Franklin Delano Roosevelt also favored repeal. He made it part of his platform for president in 1932. So by 1933, prohibition was over, and the legal flow of alcohol started again, even though that flow hadn't really stopped very much in Connecticut. That wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. You know, the blue laws, the ones that prohibited liquor sales in Connecticut on Sunday, were in force until just 2012. And the last three dry towns in Connecticut, Wilton went wet in 1992, Eastford in 2006, and Bridgewater in 2014. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Bridget Gurton, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. Next week on Amazing Tales CT, 
A special look at Connecticut's official state hero, Nathan Hale. We're going to be speaking with the site administrator of the Nathan Hale Homestead in Coventry, Anne-Marie Charlin. You won't want to miss that. If you like the show, please tell your friends, family, and colleagues all about it and show them how to sign up. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Thank you.